Hey guys, a quick note or two before we proceed. First of all, you regular listeners may have seen that this is an unusually long episode. It's because we included many stories and contributions from multiple guests. It's a neat one, I think, but you get to decide that. Anyway, we would have made this a two-parter, but we just decided to throw it all together. So, you're welcome. Basically, two episodes in one. Lastly, one of our guests was referred to as Hayden Carr, and his last name is actually Core. I apologize to my friend Hayden for that. He's a good guy. He doesn't deserve that kind of treatment. <laughs> Enjoy. Joey just only thinks of himself. How so? Because you're taller, and so you built all of them to fit I you. Do it. I didn't do any of this stuff. Joey, don't lie, man. I didn't. Don't start the podcast I'm, lying. I'm not the tech guy. Don't lie, Joey. I want to hear the smoking story because I think I've heard it once, but I don't think so. I don't think the person was telling me. I think I was eavesdropping. <laughs> <laughs> so are you ready? And I couldn't believe my ears too. Dude, it's a I shocking story I, for I, most I, people. I couldn't believe. And it, he lived. You it. couldn't believe your eyes. <laughs> I, I, I was like stunned. Hey, it's Jack Hoy. The lesser, that is. Uh, I know my father and I sound somewhat similar, so I figured you should know that today you're hearing from the handsome one. I'm here to walk you through today's episode. I agreed to this despite my natural resistance to helping Joey with, well, anything, really. It isn't that I don't like Joey. It's just that helping him, it feels like helping your kids do something that they really are old enough to be doing on their own. It's probably fine, but you also don't want to encourage helplessness or something. Anyway, I continue. Today's conversation covers a lot of ground, including things like a story about Chip busting our very own Lindstroy smoking. Yeah, like, like an actual cigarette sort of thing. Chip, Kathy, Lynn, and Joey also get into some more serious areas, including the deeply painful experiences of being part of a church whose leader betrayed the trust given to him, what these churches with abusive leaders typically had in common behind the scenes in addition to that abusive leader, and why neither Chip nor Kathy are concerned that one of our main guys, like Pastor Josh or Pastor Greg, will have similar downfalls. Both consider themselves friends with these leaders, and Kathy has managed both of their schedules and assisted them for six years. Uh, one of the things I love about Seacoast, and, and is really important to who we are, is that we take what we do seriously, but never ourselves. From my perspective, it means we're able to balance a willingness to joke around and have fun with the readiness to pivot to those moments and topics that require a more serious, somber approach. And, and I think this episode really demonstrates this well, and I hope all of you enjoy. By the way, we're going to share some different music on this one. You'll hear from our guest musician at the very end of the episode, but our very own Natasha Gray just released the album Reminders, and we'll be paying, playing the track Stones through most of the episode. You guys really need to check this album out. It's really, really good. Uh, links will be in the show notes. All right, it's Kathy, Lynn, Joey, and Chip. Wait. Stop. One more thing. This past weekend, someone actually stopped me in the breezeway to say some very nice things about the podcast, and they made a good-natured joke about the sarcastic way that Chip and I interact when we're on here together. I don't know why Joey insists on putting Chip and me in the same room so often, but I apologize on his behalf. I think we all know that Pastor Chip needs all the grace he can get as he continues to grow just a little bit more each day. Okay. 
All right, we, we, we can get going now. Just because I don't believe or agree doesn't mean I can't learn from you. Why did you have to bring that up? <laughs> okay, <laughs> that one I'm super embarrassed about. <laughs> Do you like me? Do I like you? Yeah. As, a, as an individual or as yeah, a podcast? Yeah, as a person. No, as a person. I like you. Okay, cool. Yeah. cool. And I don't have any interest in appearing to be stronger than I am. I ain't bowed a Nebuchadnezzar statue. He gonna leave. You feel me? How do we love people who see the world differently than we do? What would it look like if we truly loved all of our neighbors? Could listening to their stories be the first step? This is Seacoast Church, and there's way more to talk about. Let's hear it. <laughs> Buckle up, guys. <laughs> uh, so the bottom line is, uh, of all the things I have kind of weird like anti-legalistic, like um, legalistic about smoking is one of them. I hate smoking. And also women working, but go ahead. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> that was not true. Outside of the house, they just... <laughs> That's true. Barefoot pregnant in the kitchen. <laughs> Lord, help us, Jesus. So I'm up at the Columbia campus. Irmo. Irmo campus, I'm sorry. And, uh, and you know, Lynn's on staff there and, you know, whatever, half a dozen people, I guess, in this meeting. And it was pretty intense. We were dealing with some problems. Lynn was at the core of the problem, by the way. No, not really. But uh, so, you know, it's pretty intense. And, and you know, somebody, hey, we need to take a break. So we take a break. And I don't know, maybe, I don't know, 10, 15 minute break. I don't know. And intense I, as in like just we were stressful de- or y'all were talking? We were having a come to Jesus stuff. meeting. Oh, yeah, okay. Yeah, it was pretty There were some hard things going on. Yeah, it was pretty rough. Staff. It was pretty rough. So we take the break, you know, and, and I'm kind of like walking around and I'm like, I kind of know where the bathrooms are, and I'm like, where is everybody? I'm seriously, I'm like, okay, there's only so many places, many places they could go. And I knew they didn't have time to get in their cars and go anywhere, and I couldn't find anybody. <laughs> so I go to the, this, I don't know how I got there. Do you know the story, Kathy? Yeah. But I, yes. but I go to this back door, and it's like maybe the fire escape or something. I don't know. It's yeah. like the it's rear. The fi- it's the fire It's escape. the rear entrance. <laughs> I don't remember how I got out there. Maybe somebody said, oh, they're out back or something. I don't know. I open the door. And down at the bottom of the stairs is Lynn and one or two other people. Oh, there are three other people. And there, there are four and of they us. Are, they are four smoke. of the five staff members at the campus. And at they the were time. like, like smokestack smoking <laughs> cigarettes. And I, and I, in my, in my filter of reality, of all the things I could have envisioned them doing, like I was just dumbfounded. I didn't even know how I reacted. You were uh, like, are you ki-? Like you started yelling. And you were like, are you kidding me, man? <laughs> I, I did not react well, I'm sure. Yeah. Explain yourself. Is this a, a regular thing? No. Every time you're stressed, you run it the Marlboro? Not. It is not. I <laughs> smoked camel Turkish goals back then. But um, no, actually, I, I started smoking probably that summer before senior year in high school. I smoked for about 10 years. Definitely addicted to nicotine. And then in 2009, I stopped just like I remember New Year's Day, every morning I would wake up and have a cigarette. And in 2009, I like had my morning cigarette and something just didn't, something clicked that I was like, oh, I'm not doing this anymore. It's the Holy Spirit. Um, yeah. And so I stopped smoking. And then in 20, and so I had not smoked from New Year's Day 2009 until I was on staff at the Irmo campus. Wow. And that was 20, that was 2013 because we had some It would have been about 10 years ago, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, so it was probably about almost a year into it. And we, we there were just hard things going on. Yeah, and I were. had 
started it was crazy we had like in the middle of the hard things we were trying to build relationship among the staff we did not have healthy relationships and so one day we all went out on this pontoon boat and it was our attempt at like spending time with each other and becoming friends and one of the staff members brought clothes and so they all like had a clove out on the boat we're on the water and I I knew I couldn't have one so I was like no because I knew they didn't know but I was like if I have any nicotine I'm gonna start smoking again and by the end of that boat ride I was like okay I'll have one and I had one and I bought a pack of cigarettes on the way home and then come to find out everyone on that boat that had a clove other than the person who had them who didn't have a problem with yeah. The addiction had smoked in the past and had quit. And on the way home, they all we had all started smoking. So then we were all sneaking out at different times to go smoke. And then we found out and we're like, oh, we'll just take our smoke breaks together. And <laughs> so entered ship on that day. And that was a that was a marking day for me. Cause there was so much going on. And I've told this story in the staff, but that moment. I didn't even realize how toxic it was. Like, in my mind, it was complete. So even you coming out and your reaction, in my mind, I'm like, why is he reacting this way? And I couldn't even see, like, Mm. what was going on at that time. It was crazy. But I did (laughs) quit, guys. So those of you who are listening, (laughs) I quit again and have not had a cigarette since. Come on. Since. 2013. There you go. Wow, that's a long time. Chip, you walked into the studio. And you and Kathy know each other. You asked if she was wearing glasses, and you said it was glasses, right? Yes. Yeah, and you said they look nice on you. Very normal conversation. I have a question for Kathy and Lynn, though, and I think we've talked about this. It just wasn't on podcast. I am a very outgoing person. I have no problem with just being super open like this, but I am sometimes hesitant. Like, let's just say Lynn walks in and I'm like, wow, Lynn looks nice today. When is that appropriate? When is it not appropriate? When does it make you uncomfortable? When is it not? Does it have to do with the level of friendship? But like, if you walked in and I said, hey, Kathy, you look really nice today. Would you think, oh, Joey probably shouldn't have said that? Or would you think, wow, that was really nice of him? No, I would say thanks, Joey. And and you wouldn't think nothing of it? No. Could a different person have made it uncomfortable? Well, if I'm at the gas station, I and probably someone. wouldn't want it. <laughs> right. So a stranger. Yeah. So a stranger. Yeah. Okay. What if I said it like weekly? Then you'd be like. Yeah, I'd be like, be like uh. Well, or, or if you eyeballed her up and down. Come on. And then said, well, yeah. you look nice today. That that'd would be probably different. be creepy. That'd be, that'd that'd be, be creepy. Like, are there ever moments when someone compliments you and it's, you don't like it? Yeah. Like, what would be the scenario there? It's really funny. On that staff that we were talking about that was smoking, there was one of those uh, comments that was, that was not okay. But I think it it depends on the person that was making lots of inappropriate comments. Yes. Yeah. So it depends on the person and yeah. the relationship and what the comment is. And so I would say, yeah, if the if a if a man who is co- constantly giving me like physical compliments over and over and over that would feel weird, but also it would be like who is he? I'm single, is he single? If he's single and he's like, mm-hmm. you know, like trying to get my attention, that's different than like a married man 
complimenting me regularly. So I think it yeah. depends on what he's saying, how he's saying it, yeah. what our level of relationship is. You know, when a random person, mm-hmm. like a random man comes up and says things like that to me, I'm like, I don't know. Like, the, I don't know you. So what is the, like, what, this is a bridge to what? Like, why are you giving me that compliment? <laughs> you know, it's not, it's never been my experience that a rando is just giving me a, yeah. <laughs> a compliment for <laughs> No, so so as, yeah. No so as a general rule of thumb, if if I, we don't have to be super close, but if I know someone of the opposite sex and I compliment them on their attire, their hair, whatever, that's pretty normal and not something because because I shy away from it because I don't want like sometimes I'll see someone and be like, wow, their hair looks really nice, and I just don't even say anything because I'm like, I mean, are they going to think I'm hitting? On them? I think it depends on the person. Like, I would say that wouldn't bother me, but there might be somebody who is. So I don't know that I could say, uh, here's the standard. But um, if you're hesitant, then don't. Don't do it. Chip, would you ever, is there ever a scenario where you would have been hesitant to say something? I, I, was, I was just getting ready to tell you my rule of thumb. My rule of thumb is like, and I did it. I did this specifically. I wait till there's someone else in the room. Ah. Like, I'm not going to mm. be alone with Kathy and say, you look good today. Now, if you come in the room, then I can say, you know, Kathy, you look sharp today. Because with just you being in the room, I'm not doing anything slick and weird. Yeah. So, yeah. Because you're, I, because you're like, if I'm doing this in front of yeah. another person, yeah. that's obviously yeah. not bad intentions. Right. Gotcha. Right. Like, I like I can, I can remember times when I'm standing talking to somebody's wife, and I'm thinking, man, they look great. But I wait till he walks over, and then I say, hey, you know, you look great today. But I'm not going to say that when he's across the room. Just, you know, whatever. I'm, I consider myself what I call happily paranoid. But, um, especially in that particular area, I really do try to be careful. I really do. Here's, here's one where I don't think there's a good way of doing this. And it's really funny because God bless my wife, but there was a guy. So it was when James Island campus, we had our offices out of a restaurant and bar. And so the guy that worked there, he, he saw Priscilla and he said, I just want to tell you, and I wasn't there. So she told me this after the fact. He said, I just want to tell you, and I'm dating somebody. So I'm not, I'm not hitting on you. You're one of the most beautiful women I've ever seen. And Priscilla actually comes to me and she's just like, gosh, that was so sweet. I was like, Priscilla, (laughs) that, that, like, if, if that guy's dating someone, then he could have kept that to himself. Like he could have thought, wow, that's a beautiful woman. He didn't have to tell you that was not with good intentions. And you look nice today is different than you're one of the most Most beautiful beautiful women women I've ever seen. seen. (laughs) Well, we're going to talk behind our lead and founding pastors back for a little bit. Chip, you're not a... Well, nope. (laughs) (laughs) Lynn's like, out. (laughs) Lynn's going to go take a smoke break. Uh, Chip, you're not a BSer. I don't know if I can say BSer on the pie. I'll find out when I send the audio Come to on. Josh and Josh. But <laughs> we were talking about this would have been on last week's episode. I asked Kathy, given how closely she works with the Surratts, does she have a confidence level that some of the earth shattering moral fa- failures that we unfortunately see on a regular basis now 
are you confident, Kathy? I asked her that something like that wouldn't happen to our lead pastor or founding pastor. Obviously, no one is above that, and she knows that. I know that. But from her vantage point, she said she does not really have any concerns and gave some reasons. You actually do this as part of your job and income. Mm-hmm. You will go to church staffs and see what what sort of toxic environments are, and sometimes it's in you know the pastor's doing, sometimes it's not. But given what you've seen in churches, the number of pastors you've counseled, number of moral failures that you've been a part of or that you've seen, I'll ask you the same question. Are you confident that something like that isn't going to happen here at Seacoast, specifically with Josh and Greg? Yeah, yeah, I am. I I would say, like, my rule of thumb is a couple of things. One, one of the first things I'm looking at when I go into a church setting is the, the marriage itself. Not is it perfect, but does it look current, contemporary? Does it look like they have a relationship that they're actively working on, enjoying, communicating? Do they look like they'd ask for help if they needed it? That kind of thing. Uh, just family in general, is family a priority? You know, do, is there a, 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 a blind ambition, I would call it, where you're, you're ambitious enough that you're brushing, you're, you're driving past warning signs? You know, I don't think Greg or Josh are either that way. I think they have, what would you call it, vision, but I don't know that ambition in the in the unhealthy side uh, any more than any of us do. They're relational. They they they're around people enough. It's hard to hide. It's hard to hide hiding when you're around people a lot. It's hard when somebody else is managing your schedule. I mean, I think Kathy, you do right. I do. Yeah. It's hard to it's hard to sneak around when somebody else is managing your schedule. It, it, you know, you, you to sneak around, you gotta you gotta. You got to hide it. And I, you know, and again, I, I, I'm aware of the way, and this would be more with Greg than with Josh, but like, I'm aware of the way they have created help around them that they would reach out to if they needed it. And most leaders out there don't have that. The problem a lot of times is they don't, number one, they don't recognize the problem till it's virtually too late. Number two, they don't have that process or system in place before there's trouble, both to prevent it, but also to catch the fallout. So yeah, I'm now I'm with you. What you said a minute ago, I've walked through some things with people. I would have bet a year's salary. This could never happen. And it did. Yeah. But there's warning signs. Do you think that a common denominator, like, cause this, this is what amazes me is you'll hear of a pastor that had a moral failure and then you hear that it's been going on for a decade plus and they've been in that pastoral role that whole time. Is a common denominator of those situations, do you think they're surrounded by yes people that aren't going to push back? I mean, is that? Yeah, yeah, yes. Because yeah. I'm just like, how how does that happen for so long and then it just well, comes to it, the surface? Yeah. What I was starting to say a minute ago is most of the, the the fallout you see happening, I would say nine times out of ten, my response is, why are we surprised? Like there were just there were just a lot of warning signs of not necessarily whatever the fa- the fall was, but behavior that just should have made us all. And then that goes to where you went, and that is who's in this person's life that can say, "Dude, you're 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 not acting right. You're not acting yourself." I've had young guys come to me and say, "Hey, I'm you know 
feel I'm leaving where I'm at. I'm going looking for another position and I've been offered one over here. And they'll say, you know, what kind of questions do I need to ask? Now, this, this is uncomfortable to some people, but number one, you know, if you can get around them as a couple, because that's the best. My deal is simple. The best representation of how you're doing life 24 seven is the people you spend your life with. And if, if they're not a reflection of your healthiness, then you're probably not healthy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the second thing I'll tell a young guy, and this one's tricky now, I'll tell him if you go on staff at a church by, by spiritual beliefs and, and, and obligation, you're submitting to the authority of that church, right? And that leader. And my deal is it's not wrong to ask, sir, if you don't mind, who are you submitted to? And the problem is the answer you get in most cases is, well, I have a board. I said, oh, really? Where, where, where are they here? No, they're one's here and one's there. Oh, well, how much time do you spend with them? And it's, it's laughable. Here's the thing with authority. It's not safe to submit to authority that's not submitted to authority. And I believe you have a right to ask, well, who, who can correct you? And that's not as simple as, well, I have a board that legally, if I mess up, they can. No, 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 no. Who's around you enough? Does life enough with you? Who have you invited and empowered in your life to tell you when you're being a jerk. And I feel like we have that uh, to go back to that part of the question. I mean, you can watch somebody speak, do their thing, walk around, you know, watch them interact with people. And, and you can kind of sense there's nobody in their life. To, it's kind of like when somebody, you see somebody in public and they're wearing something that looks horrible. And you think to yourself, you just need a friend to tell you that looks horrible. And it's kind of like that. You know, you're watching someone, you're thinking, they need a friend to tell them they're being a jerk. And you have to assume, well, they must not have one. Mistakes you've made over and over again. This is Laura Berenger. She and her father wrote about their experiences in a book called A Church Called Tove. It's their perspective on why toxic church cultures are so common and why they think it happened with their leader and their church. Man, oh man. Uh, Thanks, Joey, for this assignment. Uh, This is really heavy, difficult stuff. Since Joey is asking specific questions here about how abusive power is allowed and can go on for so long in toxic church cultures, we wanted to talk to someone who lived it firsthand. She and her father attended one of the most well-known megachurches in the world. For them, it was home, and recently their leader fell hard. We've chosen to edit out any mention of the pastor specifically, as well as the church. I'm sure there are times when knowing those details uh, can be helpful, but this podcast conversation is about a general trend seen in churches today, like the one you're about to hear about right now, involving a pastor with celebrity status. The things that came out shocked a lot of people. It seemed like it came out of nowhere, though, of course, these things never really come out of nowhere. Laura Berenger. Some of you may have heard of her father. Uh, he's a well-known author named Scott McKnight. We'll have the link to Tove in the show notes. And from what I understand, Joey is having both her and Scott back on for a full episode to talk more about the content in their book. All right, Laura, thanks for doing this such 
last minute notice. This is awesome to have you on to talk about basically what people have been listening to. All of us at the table who are talking, I, I'm not saying that there hasn't been any church hurt in the past or maybe even church splits, but none of us have ever experienced the sort of mega church crumblings that we're all seeing happen, unfortunately, all too often. We're all sitting at a table, part of a mega church. Part of the conversation is we're talking about why we wouldn't suspect something like this to happen just because of how open the leadership is and how we're just all interacting and just all around each other. So it just doesn't seem to be something that would, would happen here. But instead of talking what ifs or how these sorts of things happen, I just wanted to ask you, uh, but tell us just a little bit about uh, the book. And I always, I, it's called Tove, right? Mm-hmm. I always I'm afraid I'm going to mispronounce it. Is that right? Church called to move. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Tell us a little bit about that book that you and your dad put out. I'm thinking now it's been about two years or one year. You're coming up on yeah. three years. Yeah. yeah. Tell us a little bit about it. A Church Called Tove came out of the false narratives that we were seeing out of okay. And I actually pestered my dad to be the one to write it. Um, I wanted him to use his platform to call to account and hold them accountable for what they were doing to women that we knew, we knew them, we knew their character, we knew they were telling the truth. And it it just felt like they were getting buried by a really powerful institution. So it started personally for us, but we wanted to write a redemptive book. And obviously, now we know this goes, this is way beyond um, just a couple miles down from our home too. That's how it all started, though, is identifying the toxicities. And then in the book, we try really hard to flip those into habits of goodness that would resist toxic cultures. Gosh, I should have known this was going to happen. I was going to sit here and try to keep my questions to five, and I'm getting like 10, 15 more questions that I want to ask. But I I mean, I have to work this in. Like When it comes to uh, a culture like this, where is the motivation coming from to silence people? Is it to protect the ultimately the the pastor of the church and they want to protect him because his reputation is tied to the reputation of, of the church and the church is a huge ministry but it's also a company that needs to bring in money or are they protecting him because they're like he still is God's authority he's made some bad decisions but I mean what what's the motivation I just don't understand I don't think it's the same answer for everybody I think a huge piece of it, is protecting the reputation of the institution. I think for some people, it's protecting the leader, protecting what has happened and realizing like, if this gets out, then our church is going to really be damaged. There's some of that. There are some people that don't believe it at all. And so in their... Still, still still, they don't. So in their denial... They don't believe the truth of what happened. And there's others who, you know, we just, we don't want to hurt the church. So I think in the case of, for example, there's a lot of different answers to that question. Um, A lot of it boils down to protecting the reputation of the church, protecting my own reputation as I assisted in the cover up or, you know, just not wanting to own what I did. 
to people. Right. Yeah. And do you think, and, and uh, you know, some of this, you may say, Joey, I know, I mean, I've, I've, I've talked to people and I, I have a good feel for what was actually going on, but I just don't know. Do was the leaders that were closest to the lead pastor, were the people closest to him aware of the fact that, oh, wow, this guy's not operating in the healthy way that he is presenting himself on Sunday mornings? Were people aware that his marriage wasn't the sort of marriage that he was writing about in marriage books? Like, how how known was it that he wasn't healthy? The sexual harassment and the sexual sin was not well known. The bullying and mistreatment and power abuse was. The state of his marriage was not a secret. Many, many, many people knew. I he would he would openly say, I don't have an easy marriage. I have a very unhappy marriage. He quit saying it publicly, but that was not a secret. He was he was confronted about that by I, I know of multiple people. It was not a secret. Yeah, it, yeah, and just for our listeners' sake, the issue is not Oh, how dare he have a hard marriage? Like people have right. hard marriages. We've right. all been through those seasons. I'm in a season right now, but I think it w- it's it's more of a matter of okay, he's he's basically communicating, here's what it is. Okay, so that's just how things are going to be. Like are are you going to do things differently? Would it be fair to ask those questions given that there's some people that probably have a pretty good pulse on what's actually going on? It's kind of like holding him accountable. Hey, we want people at this church to have healthy marriages and not to put things that shouldn't be put before your spouse. We, we want that for our people. So we want that for you too. Correct. From an outsider's perspective, it, it appeared that everything, the church came before his marriage. You know, I don't know the specifics, but he spoke, like he's, he said many times publicly, he did not have a good marriage. Yeah. When you look back on, I mean, you guys, you and your dad wrote a book on it. So it's something y'all thought about and, and researched and looked at other stories and, and all of that. So when you look back on y'all's experience, what about that culture allowed for, let's say specifically the bullying that is right out in the open? Why, why did it happen for so long? I think a lot of it is tied to success and the glitz of a celebrity culture. He was larger than life. The buildings are huge and beautiful. Hundreds upon hundreds of people are being baptized. The mission of the church is compelling. And the reputation of the church stood for itself. I know people confronted him multiple times. He w- it was not a secret that he and his wife would spend months apart from each other. Um, I think all of those things combined, but it, like especially the celebrity feel that he had about him and the way that others treated him as a celebrity probably contributed to a lot of the length of time that it went on. Yeah, because when people see you as superhuman, how they treat you is not good for your ego. <laughs> it's not good for anyone's ego. I, I wrote about this in Tove and I write about it. Or we have another book coming out this fall. I wrote about it there again. Like once I left the celebrity culture system of, I was able to look back and like felt ashamed of my participation in it. Like I treated him like a celebrity he would walk through the hallways and I would act like an adoring fan if I saw him and he had bodyguards around him. So 
it's not always easy to see when you're in it, but the whole system worked together. The sure he behaved like a leader, but uh, behaved like a celebrity, but many of us treated him as one. So it fed each other. And my guess, and and again, I, I'm I'm only comfortable saying this because it's in your your presence of you know someone who can shoot me down and say, nah, that's that's not really the case. But my guess would be that some of his closest circles may have been a little more comfortable with him than you were. But I bet you there were still some common ground of what you just described. They probably felt the same way, even though they were up close and personal. And that to me just sounds like dangerous ground when the people who are closest to you are still kind of in awe of you. There was a report, a governance report that came out on months after, I don't know, it could have been years, but there was interviews with the elders. And some of them said they felt like in elder, in elder meetings, they were sitting in the presence of a celebrity and they might dissent on something, but he was able to quickly get them to fall in line. And you would hope that an elder would not treat him or feel like they were with a celebrity. But that's exactly what they said. Yeah. And so if you had to guess, how do you think it would have gone down for someone in his closest circles to challenge him on what they saw to be inappropriate behavior with females? Like, how how do you think that would have played out? I would model it based on confrontations that I'm aware of on other topics. For example, his character. And it's funny, the timing of this, I happened to be with a former elder, the longest serving elder, 30 years on Saturday, just a couple nights ago. I asked her, I said, because I knew she challenged him. And, I, and I've also heard other people challenged him. I said, what would happen if you challenged him? And she said, oh, I'll tell you what would happen. He would be believed and I would not be believed. She yeah. challenged him on something and he iced her out. He wouldn't, he didn't speak to her for six months yeah. and he had such a magnetism. I don't know that I've ever been in the presence of somebody the way she described it, but he had the, and it's not all a bad thing. It's how you use your power, but mm -hmm. he had the ability to draw people in. And yeah. so she said, we bring in, you know, we did a, um, confronted him about some character issues and we brought in help. And before we know it, those people are on his side and we're all on our own. He had so much power that if you challenged him, like nothing happened because. Yeah. Yeah. And that sounds like some common ground with many of the other stories that, that we've heard of other churches is it seems like it starts with just this guy is just awesome. Like how he says things, how he looks at you, how it feels like you're the only other person in the room in a situation like you guys were in. People look at, well, I mean, of course, God's using him. I mean, just look, <laughs> he's not the bad guy. And it's just, that's, that's twisted. He was really good at, she described it like he would silo information. So maybe one elder might know one story and another elder might know another 
But if you look big, nobody knew the big picture. So we'll we'll close out here. We'll call them moral failures by these prolific leaders. How much do you think that these sorts of acts contribute to what we're all seeing as kind of a decline in church involvement? It contributes a lot, I think, at least in the circles that I'm aware of. People are disenchanted. They're disenchanted with the hypocrisy. They're over it. They're done with it. They're really mm. disenchanted with mega churches because too much can happen and you're you're not even aware of it behind the curtain. Mm. And then people like you and I, I'm sure we we both lament over the same things. It's we also see a lot of the beautiful stuff that God is still able to pull out of churches that that God loves and that's just not the stuff that gets around. You know, right. it's 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 the bad things that justifiably cause distrust from other people and unfortunately a lot of the good stuff is not as well known. But I appreciate people like you and your dad. It really feels like your agenda is we love the church and we want to help as part of the body of Christ. This stuff isn't right. And you guys are still approaching it from a, it's because we love people. We don't want people to get hurt. I'm sure that, you know, these stories and, and what you've seen and how you've seen people treated are simply, you know, heartbreaking just to have seen it and know these people. So I appreciate what you guys are doing. Thank you. Yeah, for sure. Tell us about this book coming up and then we'll have to figure out when we get with you, maybe your dad as well, however y'all want to do it. Maybe we'll talk about both books a little bit. So what's this other book y'all are writing? So after a church called Tove released and people had time to read it and absorb it and talk about it, we started getting asked questions that became more and more frequent. Like, well, how do we form a goodness culture? Or like, what are some red flags I should look for if I'm in a church? Or um, how do I build? How do I build it? I want to. I want to um, resist toxicities. I want to do what you talked about in Tove. And so the new book is called Pivot. It is our best prayerful attempt to answer those questions that became very common over the last few years. Who can say let them be first who can say who can say I'm without flaw but love covers us I ha I do not blame at all people outside of the church though the sentiments of people hearing us talk and be like whatever that's what all the churches have said. Seacoast is just a dime or dozen. I mean, is it, would that be offensive sentiment? I mean, to me, it's just not because I could imagine people on the outside. Of course, this is how all the churches talked about their leaders. All yeah. of them. Nobody saw it coming. In some way. Yeah, I agree. Like, I have a lot of friends who are not believers, and I think that they would classify the same way. But I can't be concerned about what, you know, what people think outside because I've been in <laughs> I've been in toxic situations. It's just interesting to be in a place where I'm like, oh, this place is healthy. I've been on staff for 11 years. And so I've experienced some things in some of my own unhealthy behaviors. Like we were talking earlier, we didn't go into detail, but there were some unhealthy things um, when I came on staff with the staff that was present at the time. And so if something like that had happened back then, 
I would have, to that particular group of people, none of whom are around now, that wouldn't have been a shock to anyone. So I've I've been in close proximity to people that it's like, no, that wouldn't have been a shock. That wouldn't offend you either, Kathy? No, it wouldn't. And, and I do think, I think like what you said, Lynn, it is important for us not to overly concern ourselves. But I also think it's equally important that we're not so quick to be offended because it's like, yeah. what are we offended of? Just Google fallen pastors. <laughs> Yeah. That's what that's right. what they're going by. Yeah. <laughs> you know, Chip, you've actually said before that you see this as God judging churches like under a state of judgment. So basically, pastors, if you want to carry yourselves as celebrity pastors uh, and surround yourself with yes going. people, yeah. then it's not going to go well for you. Yeah, yeah, you yeah. know, if you want to call yourself a pastor, but then lead nothing like Jesus, this yeah. is what's going to happen. Yeah. I think God loves us enough to give us what we think we want until we choke on it. Mm. Everything we do serves a need or we wouldn't do it. So leaders, non-leaders, everybody, we, we do things healthy and unhealthy to get our needs met. And some of what's wrong with the church is we're getting right needs met the wrong way. We feel better about ourselves when we count nickels and noses. And it just sets you up to where your your sense of identity, worth, and values rooted and anchored in the wrong stuff. And that stuff's going to come around and bite you. And if it's rooted in how people think of you and how, you know, famous you are and whatever, you're, you're probably going to start making poor decisions on who you want around you. You want again. You want people that are going to tell you your all your ideas are great, and it's just a, it's just a ticking time bomb that is going to eventually hurt you. Yeah. Truth, John eight thirty one thirty two. Truth sets you free. The bottom line is the higher you go on the the food chain of authority, the less truth you get. So you have to be very intentional. And I can't even stress it enough. Oh, well, I've got leaders around me that can say anything they want, dude. No, they no they can't. No, they can't. Unless you have, you're a very rare leader and have worked really, really hard. You're probably going to have to pay someone to make sure you're hearing the truth because it just isn't natural for the people you lead to say things you don't want to hear. But I do think you can open up or help form a culture where that's possible because my years at James Island campus, this isn't to pat myself on the back. It's just the reality. I mean, I, I saw well, you're one of those leaders, Joey, that, what? that pats themselves on the back. Oh yeah. All the time. I mean, you're all just, the time. You know, this is my chance right here. I mean, this is why I'm we're, all podcast. Sit, we're all sitting here nervous because we don't want to say anything to offend you. <laughs> but I, I would tell my staff, you guys are my accountability. Yeah. Y'all, y'all are the ones that see me all the time. Now I know that uh, still, there could be some hesitation because of the role, but I, we were all in such a friendship sort of level as in addition to, a, you know, there was there was mutual respect and they saw me as the leader and all. But I heard a pastor before. Well, I, I, I said something like that. I was in a group of pastors and, and I said what I just told to you guys. And the pastor actually responded, I would never do that. I would never yeah. have that um, that accountability with the staff. And am I too judgmental to say, well, then that's the problem? I don't think so. I mean, it, what, do, it, what do you all think? I don't think so. It, isn't that yeah. who you would want to be? Would you be more comfortable following a leader yeah. like that? Yeah. A leader yeah. that said, if you ever see me out of line, I want you to tell me. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I still am a little baffled by how some of these people are really smart people. And I don't understand how we how we can think things that are just not very smart. Because any any person that's that you're asking to follow you is going to feel safer and follow you with more fervent commitment 
if if you say, hey, you know, you ever see me headed down a road with the bridges out, please tell me. Yeah. I, I can't say I've fully figured that one out. Like the whole thing where a pastor can't have friends in, in his church. I'm like, whatever, man. I just don't even know how we come up with this stuff. I mean, for, for me, that is a, that is an incorrect or unhealthy way of seeing your role. Like yeah. if, if you, if you see yourself as this person that can't be friends with people you're leading, it, you, you've got yourself in too high of a, a, a light. And maybe I sometimes minimize my role, but I took my response. We, we do, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> I took my responsibility at, at the, the campus very serious. It's not like I minimize my role of leadership, but I always saw myself a part of an organization or, or a part of a body in which I needed them just like they needed me. I mean, I mm-hmm. saw that firsthand in my mental health crisis. Like I, I needed the people that called me pastor to pastor me. And I, you know, mm-hmm. I had people like Chip and, and Josh and, 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 and folks who I would see as my superiors helping me as well. But bottom line is the campus pastored me mm-hmm. also. And I'll, I'll never forget. She, there was a pastor that committed suicide on on James Island, the, the town where the campus was, and there was a woman who came up to me, and she's my friend also, but she was very serious. She may have even taken my hand and said, you know that if you ever got in a spot that you didn't think you can get out of, that you can come to any of us. And I just thought, that is beautiful. Yeah. That someone who, you know, may not even necessarily have like a leadership role, not on staff, but felt it important to to say to their pastor, hey, we're we're here for you there, you know, too. Mm-hmm. I, I can't I can't be a pastor any other way. Like that's yeah. that to me is just that's that's where the good's at. I wonder if for some of those people, they've come from cultures where they've gotten burned. Cause there are people who have like mm-hmm. been honest or had struggles and they they didn't have their back. And so I wonder if there's like some of Mm. that is a, there's this culture that's been created where you're in a place where you go to your, whoever it is, your elders or your Mm. lead pastor and you share a struggle and they're just like, you're out of here. Yeah. Gosh, that seems so foreign, but that has to be true. It is. is. It is true. I mean, I I know, yeah, I know someone who actually was going, I mean, I, I live firsthand a mental health crisis while being a pastor at this church, and I can't speak highly enough for how Seacoast handled it, loved me through it, took care of me, rest Priscilla, you know, gave her assurance everything's going to be okay, you know, don't, don't, don't worry sort of thing. Around the same time, someone I knew went to their pastor with mental health crisis and was fired on the spot. Mm. for going to his pastor and saying, I'm having a mental breakdown because the pastor immediately paired it to, oh, well, something's wrong in your life. Mm. I mean, that's insane. That is insane. Don't throw stones. Let go, let go of the stones. Come record some segments, Joey said. It'll be fun and lighthearted, he said. Uh, Listen, I like jokes, but even I can read a room. No jokes from me about this segment. So the guy Joey was just talking about before I interrupted is Hayden Carr. 
He and Joey have known each other for four years or so, and Joey wasn't sure if he was off on some details, but he certainly knew his quick comment was likely a gross oversimplification about what actually went down. So it's the story from Hayden himself. I appreciate Hayden's honesty on this one. He's certainly open with some of his misgivings, and that takes courage. In most situations, there's bad and good done by both sides. Things are very rarely totally black and white. Here, we are taking a look at church practices. So, dare we say, let's look specifically at how the church could have carried this out better. Shouldn't the main focus for the body of Christ be ministering with good news, the kind that people in a state of brokenness like Hayden here need more than anyone? I think after hearing this account, we'll probably all consider the question, what is a church for if they can't minister to one of their ministers? A guy like Hayden at his lowest point. Well, is it to this day hard to revisit this story? And I would imagine, and you know, from my experience too, that sometimes I'll sit down and talk about something. It's like, uh, I can talk very matter of fact about it. No big deal. And then sometimes I'm kind of surprised by the emotions that come out. I'm like, gum. like this has been a really long time. Why are these emotions coming up for you? What, what year did all this go down and how do you feel now when it comes to healing process for you? Yeah, it started, um, almost four years ago. So right after everything went down, it was really hard to talk about. I didn't really talk about it with, with anybody. Then you kind of go through an anger phase. Like you do want to talk about it, but because you're angry and you want to yeah. like have your anger justified. And so you go through a phase of where you tell everyone because you're just so angry about how they messed up. And over time, you just kind of don't. I personally, I just didn't want to talk about it anymore. Just I wanted to put it behind me and move on. But now it's kind of come full circle in a way that like I can talk about it and I've accepted and processed everything that happened. So there's not really a lot of emotions that spring up from that really anymore. So I can talk about it, but there's not really any instances where I like have to or am yeah. asked to anymore. So like when it when everything first happened, it was constant. You were telling every single person what happened yeah. and now it doesn't really come up anymore. And so I don't have to talk about it very much anymore. Yeah. So the big question is what happened? So at the church, I was newly hired as the quote unquote director of discipleship, which was a fancy name for you're the youth pastor. Plus you're doing extra stuff. So I was over high school and middle school, but also different like projects throughout the church, like fellowship and all those. I had recently been going through a diagnosis with bipolar disorder and was on medication, but the medication was not working that well. So in a lot of therapy and a lot of drinking as well. So I was drinking a lot to kind of numb whatever feelings the medication or therapy didn't help with. Uh, and it just snowballed and snowballed. And over time, like I'm not like blameless in this whole situation and how it turned out. Like I take responsibility of the stuff that I did um, when I'm struggling and going through all that. But after like, you know, a few breakdowns and close calls, it came to a head one night where I was drinking with friends way too much and tried to take my own life. Thank God I, I survived. And so I remember going to the hospital after everything just kind of came to a a breaking point. And it wasn't like anything in specific burst the bubble. It was just the natural pace that things were on. Um, so I spent a weekend, you know, locked up in the hospital and 
when I got out to the church in the pastor, they wanted to have a meeting right away. So we got out, <clears throat> had a meeting with them pretty much right away. And I'm and curious, how, how did they find out? Was that something that you had reached out to them because you weren't there that weekend at, for services? Yeah, I, I felt so I played in the band on Sunday too. So yeah. youth group was on Sunday. I played in the band and it was my responsibility to let them know, like, I'm not going to be at, you know, your drummer's mm-hmm. not going to be there tomorrow. You know, you won't have youth service tomorrow. Like I just thought have my wife text and be like, Hey, get my phone, text him, tell him what's happening under the assumption that it would have been supportive. Like, Hey, you got to let your church family and your pastor know, here's what's going on in my mind. Oh my gosh. They're going to like, support us and be concerned and it's like they need to know and that's what they're here for and they'll be there for us so they have to know about it and <laughs> the opposite could not have been more true so got out of hospital and i like to make light of situations through comedy so we're on the phone with the pastor and i was like well just so you know you can't fire me because of you know medical x y and z and he's i knew something was wrong when he said well actually no we can like in rebuttal to my joke, I was like, Oh no, this is not going to be a good meeting. If that's what he's already thought about. So we go to this meeting and the offer first off the bat was three months severance. So that was the first offer they threw out and then like wash their hands, but go away. The other was to follow a very strict wellness plan. And keep in mind that this is, there's no, how are you doing? How can we help? It's like business Here's here's the offers. Here's what's going to happen. Here are your choices. Yeah. The wellness plan was obvious stuff that any pastor would hold themselves to, like no drinking. You, you you know you have to check in with us. We need X, Y, and Z from you. And for the most part, it was okay. It was like yeah, go to therapy. Won't drink. Do this. Do that. But the biggest thing on that list of what they wanted was access to my health records. So they were asking me to sign over, basically like HIPAA say they have access to all of my information. So that would have been like medication. That would have been anytime I met with a therapist, they would have access. They could talk to the therapist. And when I brought this to my therapist and their team, they said, absolutely not. This is like, this is totally uncalled for. They don't need this information. It's an invasion of your privacy. And I brought that back to the church and said, Hey, doctors say this is not okay. You can't ask. This is my private information for me to get better. And I need to be able to talk to them about things that I can't talk to you about, invite, you know, because that's part of the healing process. And they said, no, we need to have full access of all your records and notes and everything to make sure that you're sticking on track and doing what you're supposed to be doing. And we just continued to like butt heads on it. I think maybe I was there another month max um, before. I stepped back and I said, okay, I'm, I'm taking that severance because this is obviously not meant for me to succeed. How things are going is everything is stacked against me for a reason because you want to have an out rather than it make it look like you got rid of me. You wanted to have a reason that I left that validated your opinion that I needed to go. So once it became clear that that was actually what was happening was I was being set up to fail on purpose. I met with the pastor one more time and he said, okay, well, you got two options. Either we fire you or you take the severance. So obviously <laughs> you go ahead right. and take, take the severance there. But, and then we, we moved on. Um, yeah, it was just the most shocking lack of support. It felt like I was, uh, like a corporate employee, like a CEO of a, at a company that did something bad and they just wanted to get rid of it and brush it under the rug as 
as fast as possible. So, so at no point was there a conversation of like, we're so sorry you are going through this. Obviously you made some irresponsible decisions. Doesn't matter right now. We're so sorry. We want to be here for you, help get you in the right direction. We love you. We're here for you. There wasn't any ever that sort of tone of, Hey, we got you. Like, no, we not, for help. A, not for a second. Like the, the second we walked into the room with the, for the meeting, you know, we were still hopeful and you could tell like, it was, it was like business Two people, other sides of the room, like, Hey, here's like, here's our plan. Slide the paper across. Okay. Look at that. And we, I was just waiting for like, Hey, take a break, take a few months off, like focus, do what you need to do, get better or literally anything other than a, you take three months severance or follow these rules. Well, I just literally got out of the hospital like 12 hours ago. And this yeah. is what, like, this is the healthy first response. <laughs> is to, right. Yeah. Is to go I mean, to, I, to do all this. And I've been in very similar shoes and have seen this play out so differently. I mean, I'm, I'm hearing your account and it, the irony of what the church is intended for as far as offering hope and come as you are, come broken, that wasn't applied to who they should be taking care of the most. Someone that they're actually partnered with, so to speak, to minister to others. And yet when you're in the you know lowest point of your life, like, where's the ministry for Hayden? <laughs> yeah, know? it didn't, you know, it didn't exist. I, I mean, there was... Yeah. And I think you've already articulated it, but what's your opinion as to why it went down like this? Because it's seen more uh, as a as corporate affair sort of deal. You weren't someone to help. You were someone that could po- possibly be a liability. Yeah, I think, too, the fact that it was at a smaller church played a role in it. I think if you're at a mega church and something like this happens, there's so many staff people where you can maybe afford to take months away or take a step back. But when you're at a church and the staff, you're one of the five staff members. Yeah. You leave a pretty big hole, but at the same time, word travels a lot faster in a smaller church. So, I mean, there was maybe 400 people. And so when something like that happens, everyone's going to find out about it real fast. But if you're at a mega church, you know, you might be at one part of the church and no one ever finds out, you know, it's not their business. But so being such a public face, I think it's just the easier thing to do than try to handle it in front of the congregation and field all those concerns and questions. And in that moment for them, the easiest thing to do was to handle it this way rather than admit that, okay, this is going to be a struggle for a long time that we're going to have to partner with and figure out. But the easier thing to do is just to get rid of the problem. So I think that's what, what happens. And maybe it was all that they knew to do. And maybe it was in their heart, the absolute best thing to do. I'm not sure, but I definitely think that it was the easiest thing to do. And it was the easiest way for them to save face was to paint it as a problem rather than someone who needed help. Uh, I like how you articulate that. It sounds and correct me if I'm wrong, but it, it sounds like you are talking from a place of healing in the sense of, I don't hear 
a lot of anger. In fact, you know, you've come a long way in the healing process when you can talk about this and own some of it. Although you, despite the fact that you were treated, I think you and I would both agree not well at all. How have you been able to forgive? What's that looked like? And I don't want to assume that, you know, you feel totally released from this. You know, sometimes I think forgiveness is a, is more of a journey. You know, we want to just cross the line in the sand and pretend like, you know, nothing's ever going to creep up. But sometimes we just have to decide to forgive more than once, you know, through maybe a course of years. But where are you at with that? I think that I'm almost to the point of forgiveness in that sense. I've definitely moved on as in like I've accepted that it's happened. I've reflected on it. It's in my past. It's part of me. I don't know if I've forgiven the, the people behind everything, but I definitely understand now looking back at this situation, what their motivations might have been and why it went down a certain way, possibly. So I I can definitely look back and reflect on that and understand it and, and learn and comprehend everything that's happened. But with the people, it's a lot harder because there are people and I know that they're not perfect. But at the same time, I know that they had the power to do uh, to do otherwise um, and just chose not to. So that's the, the hard part is forgiving the actual people. I want to, but it's also a process that I'm not actively going to spend a whole lot of mental and, and emotional energy on it because the way I see it, it wasn't spent on me. So I can forgive them and move on on my own time rather than try to analyze it and focus on it and forgive them just for the sake of forgiving. I think that I'm going to live my life and do the best that I can given everything that's happened. And then hopefully over time, that'll lead to forgiveness. But I don't want to have to spend more mental and emotional energy on something that over time will, I I believe, heal itself. Yeah. How has it jolted your former confidence in what church community could be when it comes to safe family? This is these are my homies, man. This is my church family. Have you kind of lost lost hope of that? I have not lost hope in the in the sense of it existing. I just think it's where it exists is key. And with all the other celebrity pastors and mega churches collapsing all around us. I think I've learned that the traditional church organizational structure is not fit to handle a true, honest community like that. I think the system that we've built up is not built to author that real authentic thing that is advertised. So that thing that we advertise of a family and you're safe here, you're home here, you're welcome here. When I see that advertised at churches, I don't believe it anymore. But we as people can offer that to each other. So I think that it is possible. And we have seen communities come out of churches that do offer this sort of thing, like the groups that we're a part of. And I think that works is because there's no actual structure involved. There's no money coming in. There's no person who's in charge of leading everything. No one has sole responsibility. It it literally is just a group of like-minded people who want to support each other. And I think if that's where you start from, you can find that family and community. But if you have to sign up for a class and then get on an email list and then go through this orientation and then get assigned to a group, you know, I think the process behind it is is what really decides if it's going to be an authentic community or not. And I just don't think the modern church is made to offer what they advertise. Yeah. Well, hey, and I appreciate it. I really appreciate you sharing your story. Glad you're in a better place and enjoying fatherhood. Thanks, man. It's a blast. I appreciate <laughs> it. 
Yeah, and uh, we'll we'll let people know that we we're doing this at seven a.m. so that your daughter could be all nestled in her bed, nice and asleep. And five minutes into it, daughter woke up, and that's just how it always happens. That's how, that's how it goes, exactly. I mean, Chip. That sounds so archaic. I hope that I'm not leveled by your answer, but how common are those sentiments towards mental health in the church today, do you think? Because we've come a long way, but is that still common to see mental health as that's demonic, something's wrong with you? Definitely not as bad as it was even five years ago, 10 years ago. Now, 30 years ago is pretty bad. I, I think we're I think we're getting our heads wrapped around it better. I don't know that we... Like self-awareness is still pretty bad. Like I was thinking a second ago, Joey, when you were talking about your staff, and I remember coming over there the first time. You guys were kind of famous for your great relationships. And what I was coming over was to watch and see, did it did it feel like there was still a sense of order? Because there is still a sense of authority and submission right. and all that, you know? And I remember watching and thinking, these guys get it. These guys get it. They really do. But it's so, it was so... Um, I didn't know we were famous for that. We were famous? Yeah. Like I worldwide mean, famous? No, not worldwide. <laughs> I mean, there, I got to Google me. I mean, well, there were there like... There he goes, patting himself on the back again. Yeah, yeah. There, yeah. Were like, there were like 10 or 15 people who knew about it. All right, Joey and I talked about this one, and he was genuinely surprised to hear Chip refer to his past James Island campus staff as being famous for its friendships. Uh, This was when he and Priscilla led the campus for 13 years, and by famous, I mean Seacoast famous. I don't know why Joey was surprised. The key name I just mentioned was Priscilla. Look, I like Joey a lot, I really do, but he's not exactly the center of gravity in that power couple. If you told me that actually Priscilla was the one running this podcast, it would explain a lot about why it's been going so well. In any case, here's Joey talking with a couple of his former staff mates from Seacoast James Island. He worked with Sarah from 2013 to 2018 and with Robbie during a lot of that same time, 2015 to 2020. So the three worked together for four years. In restaurant years, that's like a full three decades. Uh, We'll hear what they think of Chip's comments. Also, I like that Joey hears someone compliment him and decides to devote an entire podcast segment to people talking about that compliment. Oh, he's so humble, you guys. Hey, so I was thinking about me being at James Allen for so long that we had so many different chemistries in the office when it was you guys and, and more, you know, Jennifer, I'm sure I'll leave some names out, but that that was one of the golden seasons. Obviously, there were some golden seasons when Priscilla was on staff, but man, when you guys were on staff, it yeah, was, that was fun. 
And I was thinking about how much of a blessing that Belgian waffle shop was. <laughs> right, right. Especially when I was pregnant. Right. Yeah. yeah. It was sometimes a blessing because sometimes yeah. for me, I was eating waffles. I'm pretty sure when we I had Belgian waffles for every single volunteer <laughs> gathering and any other reason we could think of. <laughs> yes. Oh, man. Well, I, did you guys know that we were famous? Definitely did, did not know that. Did y'all know that? <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know that. <laughs> we, well, I, according to Chip, we were Seacoast famous. So in all seriousness, I think I heard of a mention on staff one time as far as, you know, Joey and his staff and, you know, they're all close, good friends. And I just, I thought our dynamics were honestly just how they should be on church staff. I think this is just how everybody operates. So I guess I know that's not the case now, but some ways in which I I do think that I see things differently, and I'll throw this out to you guys, and then I just want to hear y'all's, y'all's quick takes. I, I, I do recognize that some of this is a little bit different than my peers, but I am typically hesitant to make decisions about the church solely on my own. Uh, sometimes I would if I thought it was necessary, but usually it, there were more opinions that would be helpful. So my posture is usually along the line of knowing I'm the person with one perspective, but then recognizing it's kind of a underutilizing the different people who surround me, you two being some of them with, who have different perspectives and gifted and discerned in ways I'm not as much. And so I wanted y'all's perspective so I could ultimately make the most informed decisions. Secondly, when it comes to like our humanity, I, I just always saw all of us as the same. Now we have different roles. Mine happens to be leading and God will give me what I need and who I need uh, to do that effectively. And I take that second part serious. Who I need is you guys, elders, you know, other leaders in our church. And then a couple more things. Sometimes age is a factor. And sometimes the relationships are more along the lines of mentoring. I mean, I had people on staff that I saw myself more in a mentoring role, but as humans, we're all, we're equivalent. And I can always learn from you and should keep my eyes open for those opportunities. Uh, and I always want that tension. I'm the leader, but I sure as heck can be learning from you guys. And I, I saw y'all as accountability. I mean, y'all saw me the most, so it didn't make sense any other way to have yeah a, additional accountability outside the staff. But why wouldn't you guys be in place for that as well? And then I guess lastly, that one thing that could be a little bit different because of of some pastors that I've hung out with and some of them very casually just overhearing their conversations. But I was genuinely, uh, regularly open about my struggles uh, with you guys. And then lastly, we just loved having fun and being close. But in y'all's opinion, what are some of the factors that led to our ability to be very close, but also not forfeiting the things that allow for hard work and order, for lack of better words? Um, I think a lot of it had to do just the size of our staff because... One, we had that small staff anyway, so we got to know each other on a deeper level versus if you have a whole lot of people, mm. then you get to know a few people on a deep people on a deeper level, but not really have the opportunity to get to know everyone that way. And our yeah. staff, we were able to. Um, and then on top of that, just our personalities fit our jobs so well that I think we just trusted each other in our positions. And then we all had such very different positions like Robbie Mm -hmm. with custom and music, you leading the campus. I mean, you and I worked closer together just because I helped you admin wise, but admin for the campus and, you know, children's ministry and all the different ones were so different that we had 
our work that we had to get done and we knew that. And we didn't have a lot of stepping on each other's toes Mm. because we were such a small group. I think that added to our work ethic. We knew what we had to do. We wanted to get it done. We wanted to do it well. And we didn't have a lot of voices coming in. And so then when we did come together as a group, we really cared about what other people had to say because we wanted that guidance and that help in a way, if that makes sense. You know, Joey, I think you led the campus this way too of, I want your opinions And once I give you my opinion, Mm -hmm. go for it. I'm not going to micromanage you. And we really felt valued as a staff, at least I did, and in our roles and trusted to do a good job. It just seemed like, and I mean, you touched on this, Sarah, but personality wise, did we just hit the jackpot as far as people meshing together? Because we really didn't have a whole lot of conflict within staff. Like, I, I don't, I don't know. I mean, it would take me a while to really think through any sort of conflict management that I had to figure out with with people amongst staff. So I just wonder if sometimes we lucked out. I remember when I was being hired for the James Island campus. I think that a lot of this goes in the hiring process when you're you're looking for putting the right people in the right positions. Sometimes it does boil down to skill set, but sometimes it does boil down also to personality and um, inexperience. And I remember our our interview over, I think it was over like Google or Skype or something coming into it. I feel like the unit at James Island when I got there was already so tight, um, which is obviously just an environment that you create there. Um, it was, it was really tight, but it felt like for me, uh, I don't know if it felt like this for you, Sarah, when you first got on staff, but like, it almost felt like, I don't know how I'm going to get into this unit. <laughs> like, they're all best friends and I'm here to do a job, you know? Um, but then like just immediately, remember you invited me into the group. At, at least that's what it felt like. It wasn't something formal, but it just felt like you were grafted into this group and this unit. I remember one of the first conversations that you had with me was about work-life balance. And I don't think I've ever had a boss I know you don't like that term. I don't think I've ever had a boss actually ask me about that. Actually con- concerned about, are you spending enough time at work and enough time at home? So that already communicated, I guess, safety for me. Broke down some barriers there uh, with that. But then also, even in staff meetings, I'm usually the guy that I hear the vision, I write down all the details, and I get the job done, whatever, they, whatever the person is that needs something done, either musically or with education or whatever it is. I can hear what they're wanting and fill in those gaps. I remember being in that posture and then at staff meetings, you, you know, just, I'm just waiting on the the directive and you're like, no, what does everybody think about that? Why does that matter? <laughs> you know? Sometimes that had to get annoying. I bet you there are sometimes you're just like, just make the decision and tell us that gummit. <laughs> I wasn't used to that part of it. The collaborative, yeah, the collaborative spirit in the room. For me, it felt like a new muscle because it wasn't the only time I had ever probably exercised that was if I was doing something on my own, not in the group. I was always in, in some sort of supporting role. So I think that in itself, just creating that dynamic, you're now recognizing everyone in the room as an expert in what they do. And so that creates a different environment. It creates a higher level of ownership um, and really trusting the skill set. But also at the same time, in the hiring process, you hired highly capable people that not only knew their job, but then ended up caring for each other a lot too. So there was that intrinsic motivation there too. The friendship wise too, like, I don't know that we all would have hung out outside of church a whole lot, but 
especially in staff meetings, I remember you always asking about each of us personally and almost (laughs) making us answer, (laughs) you know, and getting me to open up and say things that I wouldn't have normally said before or whatever. And so we got to know each other on that deeper level, even before we talked business stuff. And I think that just built the trust within each of us and then built that friendship to where when we did hang out, it was like we've known each other forever. And so I think that is very important is like, even if you don't think you're going to hang out with the person outside of work, if you get to know them on a deeper level, and that was led by you, Joey, then you know, I was going to say forced, but led. (laughs) 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 Uh, It's just like a a beautiful entrance into the friendship. And I think when you're friends with people that you work with and you care about them, you work better together Mm -hmm. because you won't get in those silly little arguments a lot of times and you trust each other more in the jobs that they're doing. So I remember that and take that away as being a very positive thing. And I loved that aspect of staff meetings because I got to know people that maybe not have hung out with outside of church in a better way. Yeah. I think that I heard from some of the stuff Chip was saying is that there could have possibly been concerns of, oh, they're just a bunch of good friends. There's probably not a whole lot of structure and accountability, et cetera, et cetera. Do you think that the friendships could have ever led to that. I think it could have led into that during the office time. <laughs> I put yeah. myself in that, get caught up in talking and catching up with someone and then an hour goes by yeah. and you haven't done any work. So <laughs> definitely can lead into that. Yeah. But I think we as a staff and individuals, we also had that flexibility. Like there were certain days we mm-hmm. all were in the office, but we weren't in the office together a whole lot. And yeah. we knew right we had a job to do and to get our work done. And so even if we didn't get it done that day that we're all in the office, I know people would go home at night and finish their work. And so mm-hmm. it would always get done. Robbie, uh, with how well you know Sarah, uh, what's your guess? Do you think that she would have been that open about what she just said if she was still on staff and she knew that this was going to go out <laughs> on a podcast where everybody could hear? Or do you think you think she's cool with saying she's like, I mean, I don't work there anymore, so they can't buy her. <laughs> yeah, I definitely don't think that she either would have said it unless you really, really got it out of her. <laughs> like, you know, really. <laughs> right. <laughs> Robbie, one thing that you you said to me that I I don't know if I ever circled back around and told you how shocking this was because when we hired you, I was like, man, this this guy. Um, now I feel like I have to go to Sarah and say I mean, we felt the same way about you. We did, Sarah. We felt the same way about you. But, I mean, Robbie, we brought you on. I was like, this guy. Oh my gosh. I mean, what we are so blessed to have him. And you told me one time you never felt in past staffs, never felt like your opinion or input was even wanted. Do you remember telling me that? That you're not used to your opinions even being something worth checking into? Oh, yeah. Into? That, was, that was actually most... Well, that's most of my life, if I'm being honest. <laughs> so that's been... You know, I, I would say my time at James Island was really great for me because being, like Sarah said, being forced to share your opinion so often and seeing that opinion valued and seeing it played out and it working, you know, like you don't ever get the chance to really exercise that until it actually happens until it's like, until you have the permission to do that. But I remember there were, there were some times when I would try certain things that I knew would either unify the campus or, you know, just a neat possibility, something, you know, I'm a visionary, you know, and then I would just get all this backlash, you know, and, and said, yeah, let's not do that again. Or, you know, everything, or 
most of what I ever got was, we want you to sound like this person or this, this worship team or this campus in our case or whatever. And it was never celebrating who I was, uh, even though I had been leading worship since I was 14. And I'm not going to say how old I am now, but, <laughs> but <laughs> I have been leading worship for a very long time. And it's so crazy when you go from the posture of this is a gift that the Lord has given you, the Lord will make room for you, your gift will make room for you to almost feeling like you're missing the mark and almost like in some sort of competitive situation that I don't think that was necessarily an, an intentional thing. I just think that some of that is just human nature in the industry that we work in, especially in uh, when with the entertainment piece that that seeps into church worship, we can tend to forget that the church um, that the Lord forms together has everything that it needs within the church. And so we can tend to out, look outside of that, see what's working with another church and think that we're missing the mark and we need to do something else. Instead, I would say that within our situation at James Island, I don't think we ever felt that way that we needed something outside to come in and change us to look like something else outside. I think that we just kind of embraced what we had and the uniqueness, not trying to force a uniqueness, but just let organically what, what happened, let it happen. You know, when you kind of allow yourself that freedom, then there's another level of beauty that just kind of happens. We would even push back on trying to look yeah. the same. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> which is, we'll look which the is same, but how far can we go to not look that way? <laughs> <laughs> now, Sarah, I do work here. Okay. I still work here. <laughs> I still go there. I'm very involved. <laughs> <laughs> no, for sure. I mean, early on when we were all working together, I mean, Seacoast was kind of being run differently to where that allotment was kind of the direction. I always appreciated that about Seacoast. And that's something that I feel like I miss a lot is having a culture, um, at least with the people that I was talking to among staff, having a culture of trying to figure out what things would make us better. Yeah. I would say once I left it became increasingly difficult to find that kind of uh, mentality of... Yeah. Well, thank you, guys. Thanks, Joey. Yeah. yeah. Good to thank see you, you, Robbie. And you too, Joey. <laughs> Good to see you, too. Good to see you yeah. more recently. Yeah. Tell your family I said hey. <laughs> Yours, too. Humility and gratitude. You you lived with every day of your life. You were humble because you knew how flawed you were, and you were grateful for others' kindness. All of us should feel that way. Mm-hmm. All of us should feel, how dare you follow my leadership because I'm an idiot, and therefore be humbled and grateful that anyone would look to me as a leader. And if you, if you just, if you just live there for just a, a few seconds, it changes the way you, you, you see the people around you that are working with you, for you, whatever. And, and it changes the, 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 the culture you want to build. And that's part of, you know, again, going back to some of the other parts of our conversation, that's part of why I, I do have confidence around here because we do have, we do have a genuine humility in our culture. Seacoast is kind of a big deal. And I, I'm saying that as, as one of the newer staff members in the sense of um, at pastoral level. And um, 
we don't walk around here thinking like we, you know, we, we created sliced bread. You know, I've heard Greg say, and I think he means it, like he's, he's clueless how God used him to build this. And, and I think he means it. It's not, it's not a cool little schlick way of saying, well, I'm so smart and creative. And, you know, I mean, you know, you guys ought to be blessed. You, you get to work around me. He genuinely is grateful, humble and realizes he's, he's pretty flawed. Now he's not going to parade them, but he's, he's, he, he wears it. Yeah. You know, Kathy and Lynn, how do y'all think Pastor Greg is flawed? <laughs> <laughs> Hey, Lynn's yeah. never going to hear I'm the smoking like, now. I, I won't. It's been it's been a, a minute. It's been it's ten been years. Ten years. But I, I'm new to the story. Listen, during those miracle services, like there were some people who were healed from their addictions of smoking. Someone left their pack of cigarettes on the cross, oh, wow. and the next morning, Pastor Josh was like, "Lynn, we found your cigarettes." <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> Be honest. Were you tempted at all to take them? No. no. That's, that's awesome. Awesome. Isn't it cool that we have a culture that one of our pastors would tease you about that? Yeah, it is. I mean, that says a lot about our culture. Yeah. That that we, that's just cool. I love, I love that about our oh, culture. Yeah. yeah, for sure. So Chip, have you ever smoked a cigarette? Because I know oh, you, yeah. I know you. came to the Lord in the 70s. Yeah. <laughs> well, I know you smoked cig weed. I know you smoked cig weed. But cigarettes? Yeah, I mean, I I dabbled with it here and there. Yeah. Oh, all right. We'll get that plank out. Of, and I and I really enjoy. I really enjoy. <laughs> you talked to her spec. I really enjoyed smoking a pipe. A pipe. Yeah. I really enjoyed it. Yeah. Yeah. Why don't you do it now? Just bad for you. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, you cut it. It's it's just not good for you. Did you ever smoke, Kathy? I have never smoked. Never smoked. I have done so many things, but smoking. What do you, what do you mean? Like you, you've gone, to, you've traveled to places, you've owned now different pets. Now we transition into confessions by Kathy Rosberg. I've got to know what that means. I've done many things. So many things. Never smoked a cigarette. We'll leave that for suspense. She's just trying to make sure Lynn knows she's better than her. <laughs> Wow. So I can just say that I have varying degrees of surprise hearing those things from none Chip. to I, where is my fainting couch, Kathy Roseborough? I need to lie down for a minute after hearing all of these things. Completely recalibrating everything I thought I knew about two of the three of you. Anyway, all those things aside, I think it would be a mistake to listen to, you know, some of the things we've heard today, such flawed and even warped approaches to leadership, uh, and forget to look inward to our own sins, the harm that we do, and are capable of doing to others. I'm not saying it's the same, right? It's easy to look at the big sins of others, though, and think, hey, maybe I'm not so bad, and maybe not. But each of us still saved solely by the grace of God. And I hope that he keeps us humble and wise so that we can avoid downfalls like the ones uh, we've heard about. We're going to end this episode with something a bit different. Uh, I think you'll enjoy this a lot. It's a songwriter Joey knows, Zach Bolin, who takes a bit of a more indie rock approach to his arrangements of worship music. We'll have a link to his work, including that of his band, Citizens and Saints. You may even have heard Zach's band's music before. Uh, It really has gotten out there to a lot of people. 
Zach was a part of seeing many of his loved ones, church family, suffer at the hands of a leader who was very hurtful to others. Uh, He abused his power, and the hurt caused in all directions was just too much to bear. Uh, Eventually, that pastor, too, kind of blew up and ended what was, at the time, one of the most influential churches in America. As we close this episode with the song we're about to hear, I just want to encourage us to reflect on the spirit behind the words. Let's invite God to work in us and remember Paul's words when he said, I boast all the more gladly in my weakness, so his power rests on me. You read my heart like an open book. You write my story and call it good. I can't imagine a greater truth. Who is like you? Sweet, man. Well, hey, you have... This is Zach Bolin, everybody. And how long have you been doing music? I mean, professionally, I've been doing it for 12 years. But I, I yeah, I was doing music ever since I was a little kid. Always interested yeah, in it. Yeah. And Citizens and Saints has been around how long? We started in 2011. Now the the big church that you were a part of that is no longer where you, did you have like an official worship leading role or anything yep. like that? Yeah, yep. I actually so moved where, from St. Louis to take the job there. There was multiple campuses, and so there all the worship leaders had a pretty tight knit group, and I was pretty intrigued by that. Just because for me, I I went into it pretty much feeling like I don't know if I'll work at the church anymore after this one um, because I was already kind of feeling like, I think I want to do something else. I didn't quite know what that was at the time. By the time 2014 rolled around, it was pretty clear that, you know, citizens should be like the main thing I do. But up until that point, I was doing music in the church, just wasn't feeling like that was going to be the forever thing for me. I don't think that, I think this is probably a, a very dumb question. I guess it's more for our listeners, but was, was what you experienced as far as church family and all of that pretty devastating season for you personally? Oh, um, it wasn't, it wasn't. Okay. So I worked at three larger churches and I think all of them had a lot of similarities in that anytime you're at some bigger, a part of something bigger, the, the common thing is always going to be, you know, oh man, there's so many people here. There's a lot of, there's just a lot of people I don't know. But I think that if you want to be a part of something like that, you're going to find your people and you're going to find the people that you really connect with and are your friends. And I definitely, we definitely had those friendships and that didn't go away and that didn't go away. You know, there were a couple, there were a couple that needed repair coming out Mm -hmm. of it all. That was a bit surprising and hard, but thankfully that repair came. But I think it's just because when you're going through a really hard church thing, not everybody's in the same place that you are at the exact same time. So, I mean, if there's any lesson I learned in the process of it all, it's just being patient and understanding that, okay, you're, I'm where I am right now and how I'm processing through it. And if people ask, sure, I'll share, but I can't just expect that everyone's just going to all of a sudden just feel it in the same way that I do. And so I just had some friends that maybe weren't in the same place that I was at the same time. That was, that was tricky and hard, but I, as time went on, we, we were able to repair that. Yeah, for sure. And this was a big win, made big news, tons and tons of uh, chatter years and years afterwards. And it drove a lot of people away from church. And yep. I guess when I say church, not necessarily driving them away from faith and maybe a connection to what we would all 
call the capital C church spread all over the world, but definitely a, I'm done with this organized stuff. Like this is too hurtful. And yes. what's happened to you as far as whether or not it's driven you away from church? I think I was very fortunate coming out of that whole situation because we landed, we wound up like showing up one Sunday at this church in sort of downtown Seattle that was really different from anything we'd ever been a part of. It was more liturgical kind of church. All that aside, that was different. But the thing that really stood out to me was we show up there and because it was a pretty calm, like people were really familiar with what was going on in all the church communities in our city. We showed up and they didn't act like it didn't happen. Like we had gone to a couple churches where they just sort of like... We weren't talking about the elephant in the room, but they just, they recognized it and it wound up like creating a space for there to be a lot of different types of people there. And it was the first church that I'd ever been a part of where I could noticeably say and and tell, that okay, not everybody that's here needs to be in the same place or is expected to be in the same place. And that I think really... I guess you could say like saved me in terms of my church going experience because I I definitely, the hurt was enough for me. I I mean, I said it, my wife said it for sure. I'm done. I just don't want to be a part of this anymore. And it wasn't just because of this one church. It was like multiple bigger churches haven't been a part of that and seeing, I hate to say it like this, but it really was, you start to see it's like, oh, it's, it kind of becomes like a pyramid scheme almost where you have these few people at the top and everybody's doing all this stuff for these few people at the top. And somehow in the end, they get to sort of escape the, the trauma and the hard and they, and they cause it, but they also get to escape the aftermath Gosh. of it all. And then everyone else is left to pick up those pieces. And so that was feeling really heavy for me. Then you step into this church and you're like, oh, they're not afraid to talk about that okay, wait, you have someone over here who's struggling to believe, but they're very welcome in the community of someone over here that's believing something very different than the community that we just came from. It was just like, there was a willingness for the church to still have its convictions and it's like core beliefs, but not afraid for it to be a gathering place of a lot of different people. And that in particular really changed our, our perspective. And it was, it was really sweet. I mean, our kids were still pretty young coming out of all that stuff. Like our oldest was five or six. So for me, for them, like they don't actually even remember. So I'm actually kind of grateful for that yeah. because for them, their church experience hasn't really involved a whole lot of pain. Yeah, that's awesome. What's some of the major ways that you've seen your heart change? If you could pick some low hanging fruit as far as how, how you're different having gone through something like this. I think the biggest thing that I've learned is that when you're part of a community that's really heavy on uniformity, you, as someone who's a leader in that, even if it's not said out loud, you feel the pressure of needing to get everybody on the same page. And I definitely participated in that in a lot of ways where I was really trying. I can remember having this meeting one time with this guy who was really struggling with parts of scripture. And I was just kind of giving him all these answers and getting frustrated with him too. <laughs> years later, I had I went back and apologized to him because what I realized years later was I was feeling afraid and the questions that he was asking were scaring me. <laughs> and I didn't like the way that felt. So I went into, all right, let me put my hard hat on. And these are all the things you need to say. And these are all the things this person, I need to get this person to believe. If anything, what I've learned in the process of it all is just that, man, if I really do believe that God is the creator of all things and that we're all living in this 
world in this lifespan that we're that we're in each of us where we believe all right god is the one who gave breath into our lungs and god will carry us through be with us not only at the end of this life but on past this one then i have to believe that if my life is 80 years and this other person lives 80 years too let's just say you know like there's so much life that can happen for them maybe they're meant to kind of wander for a bit and go off into some other spaces and is it better for me to say hey you need to figure all these things out or just to be a friend with them in that and listen to them and ask questions and that has been the biggest thing for me. It's just, I want to, I, and I'm still trying to do this, but to continue to grow as a listener and to continue to grow as a person who asks questions, because I think that, um, at the end of the day, we all just want to be heard. <laughs> we want to know that even if someone doesn't agree with us, that we can at least be listened to. And that right. I think is, that's just part of friendship. That's just a mm-hmm. part of being human beings. And I think that there's something about that. I mean, even for my wife and I, we've just, I think the dinner table for us has become such a huge like symbol of gathering and bringing people together from lots of different places and spaces and trusting that part of our ministry, I guess, if you will, as a family, is just being present in that. And I've been so surprised along the way to see what God's done in that to remove the pressure of, okay, we need to, who's this person that we want to, to know Jesus? All right, we need to, what's our plan right. for them to get them to this thing and that thing so that they're a Christian by this point? It's just, you get all, you take all that out. And then I think God winds up surprising you with the things that they will ask you because they feel comfortable enough to do that. And that's the part for me that I've just been really humbled by. And it makes me a believer more than ever in the church, maybe not nece- necessarily in all of the ways that we see the church right now, but I think fundamentally and philosophically in the way that I see what Jesus was building in the gospels. And I see, I see many aspects of that in our world today. Like that still gives me a lot of hope, just knowing and believing that that will continue to be the thing. And the other systems that we build of growth and anything like that, it makes sense that it, it, it has its, its, season, if you will. Yeah. It has its moment of being really bright and shiny, and it has its moment of being something that's really, uh, for some, really painful or gross or whatever whatever word people might want to mm-hmm. use. But one thing that we don't say that about is <laughs> like g- genuine friendship. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? Like when there's genuine friendship, and I think that's really what Jesus was was drawing us to was was getting us moving us toward. That's the most appealing thing possible. Absolutely, man. Well, awesome. Tell us about this song, "A Thousand Shores," and I guess what it means to you in the context of everything we've been talking about. Yeah, I mean, good I song, it, by the way, man. Well, thank Zach you. still got it, guys. <laughs> <laughs> Trying. I could lose it tonight, though. It could it could all be gone. I'll tell you what. The reason that song is so important to me is because it's almost, I mean, of course, <clears throat> what it's saying, but it's not written really about anything, any specific experience. I think what, why it matters so much to me is because of who it was written with, because I know that each of those people have been on their own journey through faith and in the church. And all of us have worked, all, all three of us as writers on that song have worked in the church in different ways. And all of us have stopped working in the church at different points and carried a lot of hurt in that. Uh, some of us have found our way back to being in the church. Some of us are still trying to figure that out. And some of, some of them are, you know, one of the guys, he's, he's a pastor in the church again. So I, I just think to me that song represents so much of what life is. I mean, even the chorus of 
you know, you give my eyes the light to see, um, to just think that throughout our lives that God, to have this sustained belief that God is with us for all my many friends that were hurt by the church and went down the road of, okay, I don't even know if I believe in God anymore. And then maybe to come back around and be like, well, no, I I think God was always with me, but maybe I was just kind of, maybe I just got lost in something else, you know? I think this is one of those songs to me that is a good reminder for no matter whether you've never experienced any hurt or you have, there's something about just acknowledging that God is is there that I've found to be extremely powerful for me and my own like spiritual formation. And so to write a song with three of us that all come from are coming from different places, I want more of those songs to exist in the church because there's it brings a language that I think is unique and, and needed. That's awesome. Well, Zach, thanks for letting us share it with everybody. And thanks for letting us kind of tap into your head and your experiences. Good seeing you, man. You too, Joey. Dude, All right, see hope ya. to see you soon. Yeah, man. Sounds good. Bye. All right. You are my everything. You give my soul a song to sing. You give my heart a melody. You give it every single beat. You are my
thanks for listening. There's a link in the show notes to our podcast Facebook page where we talk about these episodes and share some behind the scenes information, including guests we're booking. Make sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. 